Hi, everyone. Welcome to our 2018 Kickoff Kindred Cast podcast. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani. This week, I'm proud to speak with my CEO and the founder of LionTree, Arie Borkoff. We'll also hear from my colleague, Leslie Mallon, who will be grilling Arie on the themes that he's seeing for 2018 and beyond. This is a great primer for all of us at LionTree and hopefully for all of you, our clients, listeners, and supporters. So Arie, 2017 was a big year for LionTree. We celebrated our five-year anniversary this past summer in June. How do you feel looking back at the year? Well, thanks for having me. <laughs> it's always our on pleasure. Cast. Also, I should say that you're doing a great job. I've gotten a lot of great feedback. Kudos to you, Aviva. And I think every year is an important year for the firm. 2017 was a year that I'm very proud of. And I think everyone at Lion Tree should be proud of in the sense that we grew the company. We expanded geographically at the beginning of the year, launching in Paris for a broader European coverage perspective and how to really think about Europe beyond just London. France really has an emerging technology lift to it that it is growing at a faster rate than a lot of other parts of Europe. And I think that will lead to some interesting opportunities for LionTree and obviously for the broader TMT universe in France, as well as obviously across Europe through our hubs now in London and Paris. Beyond that, we expanded our product mix. Within the advisor business, we've really furthered our focus on the growth companies, LTG or long-term growth or line tree growth. However you'd like to couch it, I think it's a double entendre that works very nicely. But also because that's where the industry is. The growth companies are as important, if not more important, than the established companies. And I think the established companies would acknowledge that. But also our people. We're constantly trying to attract the right talent. And I think that's a core part of my job is talent development. More than just the talent we have, make it a platform that people externally would be attracted to and we did that with our executive residence program this year, attracting names like Ursula Burns and obviously Ed Vasey and many others. By and large, what I'm proud of is the culture and the entrepreneurial spirit of the firm and ultimately how we are positioned in the industry because we don't live in a vacuum. If we're not constantly growing and reinventing ourselves, that presupposes that the industries we focus on are also not growing. Mm-hmm. And if we're doing it the right way, then... There's a growth in tandem construct that the firm is designed to play into. I think we're on our way, but there's a long way to go. And like any entrepreneurial build, every day matters, every year matters, and it's all building blocks towards a future goal, whatever it looks like. Yeah, you've always said, even I remember my first day, that Lion Tree's growth mirrors that of our clients. Yeah, it has to. We don't exist without our clients, and mm-hmm. they certainly exist without us. So there's an imbalance there that we have to respect, and we want to respect, and we want to fight very hard to play our role. and. That takes a lot of thought and investment in our structure and our systems and our people to make sure we're positioned for that into the future and every single moment of the day. So you recently released your second year-end letter, which you sent out to all of us at the firm. How do you approach it now? It's your second time. I'm lucky that I have an outlet for some of these ideas because it's hard to bottle those things up. I don't believe in having ideas go to waste. I don't believe in leakage. If you have an idea, if you have a thought process, then A, it deserves to be delved into and thought through, and B, it deserves an outlet of some kind or another. I used to write research reports for a living, and so I do believe that it's a creative tool to have an idea, find a voice, and find an audience. The most important thing about that for me is boiling down complicated topics into a simplified format. If we're sitting at this moment in time where everything's changing and 
everyone's trying to make sense of it every single day. Our job is to have a perspective that's broader and then that can be shared in a way that is appropriate. I think that's almost an obligation of what we do every single day to kind of kick back and say, well, this is what it all means beyond just a discrete conversation. You mentioned earlier, uh, obviously, the Kindred Cast podcast. It's obviously also a new and exciting extension of Lion Tree and the brand. What are some of the lessons that you learned from some of the guests you interviewed? People like David Stern and Michael Rapino and a plethora of others that you and Betsy and Alex and others in the firm interviewed. In order to really predict the future, accurately, I think you have to really understand the past. And I think that there are really great narratives about how we got to where we are that are timeless. Things like creating channels, brands, affinity, and how audiences stick with those brands over time can be very interesting and very um, helpful in understanding the future models. But it's also about a chapter that has been going on for at least, in my mind, a couple of decades, maybe longer, that is coming to an end in some way or another in terms of like the media business as we've known it before. And that chapter is not ending in the sense of, oh, media is a dying industry. Media is a vibrant industry. But the way we have done media or seen companies engage in media or consumers engage in media is changing around us all the time. And I think one chapter is closing with respect of how these companies are situated and strategically positioned, and another chapter is beginning. And it's great to mark time. I think it's a responsibility of the firm to help tell those stories at this fulcrum moment and this moment of inflection. And there'll be other stories to tell in the future. And so I learn about how these companies have been built through the podcast. I learn about how CEOs are innovative and entrepreneurial in a fast-moving industry that is constantly changing and how they're positioning for the future, maybe very different from other industry CEOs. I'm learning about how investment dollars are prioritized for the future. And I'm also learning about how people have built their cultures at their companies. And every day I'm learning and adopting those principles and how we build LionTree. So it's mutually beneficial for myself, for our audience that listens to these podcasts, and also for our employees and how we build the company. The number one focus I have next 12 months personally is on the transactions that our clients should be engaged with around strategically realigning this industry. And I'm as focused on that right now as I've ever been. And I think that's a huge opportunity there in 2018. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, REA. Thank you, Viva. Hi, this is Leslie Mallon. I had Lion Tree's public markets business. Last year this time, we had just ended an unprecedented presidential election cycle, and we were facing a period of global uncertainty. However, the overall economic backdrop has been favorable, and stock market indices have had a phenomenal year. Big picture, what is your outlook on the macroeconomic side as we look into 2018, and how should companies prepare to navigate? Well, it's interesting, Leslie. I mean, remember a year ago, we were all a bit in a funk about what the election meant for the broader economy, the M&A cycle, obviously the stock market. But in reality, I think the statistic I saw was that the S&P 500 over the last 12 months in 2017 set a record on 63 different days for all-time highs, which is about, I think, 25% of the trading days in the year. So, the market has seen through a lot of uncertainty, but it's less related, I think, to the political dynamics. And there's been elections around the globe that have had implications around trade deals, economic factors, appointments around the Fed, et cetera. But it's more about what the underlying earnings capabilities of the companies are. We always like to go back to our fundamental framework and talk about what is our valuation framework, where do we find opportunities, 
And I think that the PE multiples are high. They're not at all-time highs. And I think that the underlying earnings potential of the companies continues to support the markets and the valuation by and large. Now, that's a macro statement. We are focusing on individual companies and M&A cycles, et cetera. And I'm by no means the expert on all macroeconomic factors. But when you look into 2018 and say, do we have elements of certainty or uncertainty, I think there were a lot more focused on certainty now than we were 12 months ago. And I think that there are backdrops for other positive factors like the tax reform, not just for individuals, but for companies. We could see more capital coming into the country from offshore balance sheets, given repatriation, and also more tax advantages for U.S. domicile companies that can then reinvest some of those proceeds into opportunities for future earnings. So, I think that's a positive factor. As a former fixed income bond analyst, the factors that I look for that cause me concern are usually focused on interest rates and leverage on one hand and inflation on the other hand. I think that those things are still largely in check. Well, on that point, do you think the newly confirmed Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, represents a risk on the interest rate or inflation side? I think it's a risk factor. I mean, I think what his comments have said so far and I think his final confirmations are still ahead of us, but all likelihood he gets confirmed by the full Senate. I think at the end of the day, his approach is going to be a a moderately increasing interest rate environment. That could obviously go a different direction and become a risk factor. But at this point in time, there are no signs that it's going to be severely increasing in rates. You know, leverage levels are largely in check. At the same time, I think this administration by and large, even though the Fed's independent, does like the markets to be supportive. So I think at the end of the day, um, there's a real point of pride for this administration in having a, a robust stock market. In the letter, you talk about the opportunity for nationwide broadband connectivity, i.e. bridging the digital divide. So an opportunity that might emerge over the next 12 to 24 months. How do you think we get there? And how likely is it that the country can achieve this milestone over that time frame? I'm glad you brought up the deregulatory framework of this government as a macro factor as it relates to the industries that we care about the most, which are you know, telecoms and media and technology, obviously in the U.S. here in this case. So one is deregulatory approaches like net neutrality, which has really become an unwinding of Obama-era regulation around the net neutrality provisions and getting that rolled back. That's one thing. I think that's a little bit of a cause and effect from the prior administration to now becoming more of a open internet. And then let's see how ultimate regulatory frameworks are designed around what could happen in the future. That's just a point in time today as a rollback. I think the broader and more interesting regulatory dynamic around telecoms is what you said, which is broadband connectivity. We still have two issues in this country around competitiveness as it relates to access and connectivity. One is rural access. We still have approximately 10 million homes in this country that don't have broadband today. That's an important gap to fill to create a connected country and platform and to be competitive on a global scale. The second part are speeds in certain markets, including the urban markets, are not as high as they need to be. And then the third area, which is, I think, like a sub-bullet of number two, is the symmetry. So we always talk about upstream and downstream speeds being separate and different, where you need much more capacity on one side versus the other. In my mind, the symmetry of that is going to be very important in the future when you start talking about virtual reality and file sharing and so on. So those are the three issues to address. They're costly issues to address, particularly on the access side, which I think by far is more important than the speed side today, because you really want a competitive country and you want equal access to broadband. I think that's going to come in the next 12 to 18 months. I think that'll be a huge initiative of the government and the innovation team over there. 
And I think that'll be a very big positive for industry, not just government subsidies and ways to solve that. But I think the industry will benefit by and large by that broadband connectivity. A big positive and I'll say a non-consensus view. How do you think demographics comes into play with millennials representing the largest and fastest growing demographic, not only in the U.S., but in other countries as well? How should companies be thinking about this and where do you see this trend driving the biggest opportunities? We spend so much time thinking about the demographics and millennials from a business-minded perspective, like how is the media industry going to target this younger demographic? How are we going to create new business models for how the new generation consumes media or commerce or other products. But I think it's a much bigger macro factor. So the percentage of people in the U.S. under the age of 30 is around 40%. That same percentage ratio for the people under the age of 30 in the world is around 50%. So the U.S. is below the average, maybe older than the average. When you look at regions that we don't often think about from a business orientation, like the Middle East and Africa, that part of the world has nearly 90% of its people below the age of 30. Saudi Arabia alone is 70%. If you think about ideological frameworks and buying power, and investment in a future generation, I think you have to have a global mindset, not just a U.S. mindset. And I think companies that are based in the U.S. or in Europe or in Latin America or in Asia that do have a global perspective needs to address that new user base, particularly because we talk about new technologies and new ways of doing things and new business models all the time. I think that has to be aligned fundamentally with where those users are coming from. The other thing I should add about the demographic is not just age, the complexion so to speak, of the demographic is also very important. We can't think of the user base under traditional lines of white and African-American and Asian, et cetera, and think that those percentage breakdowns are going to be static. Those are shifting dramatically, as I talked about in the letter we wrote at the end of last year, in 2017 for the firm, because I think that when you look at different companies focused on different segments of the population, that's also very important if you're going to get to growth and you're going to get into different behavioral patterns or buying patterns or interest levels. Now, LionTree's core business is advisory, of course. So broadly speaking, what is your outlook for the M&A cycle in 2018? And what do you view as the primary drivers as we look ahead? First of all, I would say that we are very fortunate to be in the advisory business because being in that business is a luxury that we don't take for granted because we have clients that are relying on us for our advice, which means that we have to be very thoughtful about that advice. I think there's a very high bar every single day that we walk into the office. And frankly, every year we start over from scratch because we need to earn that trust every single time. So it's a very precious business in the sense that we don't make iPhones, we don't make computers, we make ideas and we build trust and we sustain trust. And I think that is a very important thing to cultivate every single day. And I think about it every single minute of the day. So that's one. I think two is the cycle of M&A is relatively frothy. We're in the peak markets for growth and bull markets. It could last for a little bit longer, but we're still well into a bull cycle. And with that has come higher valuations and with that has become higher valuations in an M&A construct. So I think the average M&A multiple in the last 12 months has been almost 11 times. That's the highest number, I think, almost in 20 years. That's fine. It doesn't mean that deals won't happen. It just means that deals will be much more strategic and reorienting companies versus finding value situations. Now, I actually think in media and technology and telecoms and consumer industries all experiencing so much change that will continue to be very, I use the word frenetic, but I think very busy in growing still in terms of M&A volume and bucking the overall trends, which may slow down. 
So I wouldn't confuse the TMT M&A cycle with the overall M&A cycle, just by virtue of the fact that we're looking at each company in these industries and saying, I think you guys are going to have to do some things differently to get to the consumer in a way that you haven't done in the past. And I think that the tectonic plates are shifting with respect to technology delivering content, different devices in the home being the key thing that everyone's fighting for access to. And obviously how the consumer-related industries continue to shift. And that technology segment will migrate into healthcare, financials, automotives, et cetera. So like with Amazon Whole Foods, as an example, these are disruptive M&A deals in terms of changing industries, not just creating deals for deal's sake. So I think when you're in that moment and when capital is still relatively cheap, that M&A cycle will continue and sustain itself for TMT. Everyone talks about scale as a primary driver, but it can't just be scale for scale's sake. So what does scale really need to be all about? When we look at scale from a financial lens, we think about synergies and cost savings and the ability to get more buying power out of an existing business model. That's really what we look at when we see horizontal M&A, which is M&A deals in the same sector, in the same segment of the industry, so you can get more management efficiencies and cost savings. But that's not the only way to think about scale. I think the other way to think about scale is how are you best positioned in a broader landscape to be competitive and to unlock value for growth potential? And I think that's where you can think about M&A in other ways, potentially vertical M&A. So you have a platform provider that could be a telecoms company like an AT&T Time Warner's case or a cable company like Comcast NBC or a technology platform saying, we would like other products to differentiate our services like content, like applications, like commerce, et cetera. And that could create scale in the sense of having a more fulsome model to deliver to the consumer. Or you can look at scale and saying, we need more buying power versus our distributors or our competitors or our partners. So if a distribution company and a content company are negotiating with each other, the content companies need to have more scale to appropriately discuss those services with the distribution partners. But in this day and age now, the content companies have really caught up. If you look at where Time Warner is and where Disney Fox potentially will be, then the distributors have potentially a subscale environment all of a sudden versus the content companies. And that flipped over the last couple of years. And then the other way to think about it is connectivity. I mean, in the U.S., we don't really have a lot of national providers yet. Maybe AT&T with DirecTV, but Verizon, Charter, Comcast, they're not national yet in terms of broadband connectivity. In Europe, you do have national providers of broadband and telephony and cable services, video services. So that's another form of scale. And the last thing I would say is geographic diversification. That's not thought of as scale in traditional sense, but having a geographic footprint that's diverse will be very beneficial to operate through different regulatory regimes and different currency dynamics and different growth prospects around the world. And I think that'll be increasingly important to be truly global to capture the right levels and levers of growth. You just cited the Disney Fox transaction. Do you see that bringing a call of action? Disney Fox has a lot embedded within it because one is traditionally we would never have thought of the Murdochs as being sellers as a family controlled company. But what differentiates an entrepreneurial CEO versus a traditional CEO is the need and necessity to look around the corner and take actions that have long-term consequences. And we've thought of family controlled businesses as being straight up in accumulating assets in that vein of saying, Let's build for scale, let's buy assets, let's buy newspapers or broadcast stations and satellite TV, et cetera. And now we're seeing it go the other way, saying we're family controlled businesses, saying we're looking at a much broader lens here with technology platforms and the competitive landscape shifting. We need to take actions to diversify our holdings and divest. And Katzenberg has done that. Murdoch's have done that. We've seen Malone do that. And so family controlled businesses that were thought of being predictable in their accumulation of assets are now going the other way, given their landscape, which I think is a very prescient moment 
for the media industry to take that broader approach. That's one. Two is the content industry is indicating it needs more scale to compete on a direct-to-consumer mindset, which benefits Disney because Disney is fashioned themselves as the best home for content assets to be managed with scale. No controlling shareholder, a pristine set of assets, very focused on sports and other forms of content and studio businesses, and a great home for everything from Lucasfilm and Star Wars to the Marvel characters to Pixar and now to the Fox assets, potentially. So Disney has positioned themselves as being the home of content management, which I think is an interesting cultural statement about um, where families are comfortable housing their media properties or precious sacred assets and then diversifying around that. But the other thing is getting to the consumer through the content lens is relatively unproven and historically unnatural. Usually you get to the consumer through a distribution partner, whether it's a cable company or a technology platform these days, but not directly from the content company. So this is going to be a strategy that's not yet proven and will test the consumer appetite for yet another OTT service, over-the-top or direct-to-consumer service. You're seeing a number of different video providers coming at you as a consumer, whether it's the cable industry or whether you're seeing satellite companies, we're seeing the telephone companies, we're seeing Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, etc., and now potentially Disney, direct-to-consumer with BAMTech, and also maybe Hulu. The question is, what will the consumer take up? And will they choose the brand? Will they choose the content? Will they choose the convenience factor? Or ultimately they say, you know what? We just need a device. Let me get into the home and I'm going to speak when I get into the living room. And I'm going to say, I, Leslie Mallon, I, Arya, I want to watch Game of Thrones. And it comes on. And voice activation happens. Is that through your Alexa device? Is that through your smartphone? That, I think, is ultimately or a Roku device, that thing is ultimately more interesting how you access your entertainment with a device than just doing a direct-to-consumer yet another brand because they're all going to be valuable in one way or the other and they're all going to have to find their points of differentiation. Maybe that consumer take-up is ultimately what's most important to get their attention. The other part of the Disney-Fox deal, which I think is emblematic for the way companies are approaching today's ecosystem, is while that deal is all about getting more content to get directly to the consumer in new offerings. It also is as much of an affirmation of the current bundle as it is new models, meaning Disney Fox will have ESPN, regional sports networks, et cetera, which has its value primarily tied to the existing ecosystem with the cable companies and the satellite companies, et cetera. So Disney and Fox definitely wants to compete with Netflix and Amazon and get to the consumer more directly, but they also want to make sure they preserve the existing bundle at the same time. It sort of flies in the face of this skinny bundle concept. And I often say, have you ever heard a consumer walking down the street asking for a skinny bundle, please? And the answer is no. I mean, it's really a function of the industry indicating the need to innovate and evolve the model. And that just means engaging with the consumer differently. I don't think the consumer necessarily wants, from my perspective, I'm just sitting here as an advisor, but wants um, less. You know, consumers don't usually ask for less. I think they want more, just in a different format, or with more choice and more availability and more ways of consuming that content. So I think, in one way, Disney Fox, as a deal that's symbolic for the industry, has more content available to the consumer directly, while at the same time indicating very strongly that they want the bundle to continue as is for as long as possible at the same time. So it's a bit of a hedge. Because of that, other companies will try to get there with that dual revenue stream or dual model as well, whether it's from a distribution vantage point or technology vantage point or other content companies. 
in different ways, which leads into different vertically integrated models thought about in different ways or more scale transactions for other content companies or more just scale overall for distribution. So I think people will get their different ways to preserve what they have and lead into growth models for the future. And when talking about M&A, you've got to talk about regulatory. And the market was quite surprised with AT&T and Time Warner with the regulatory pushback. So looking forward, how would you characterize your expectation for the regulatory backdrop and how that might impact vertical integration? Well, regulation or deregulation, I think, comes in many forms. One is what we talked about a few minutes ago around rolling back net neutrality rules and creating a less of a regulatory burden on decision-making and the way that commercial enterprise is allowed to function in the marketplace. I think we're certainly in that deregulatory path. I give Chairman Pai from the FCC a lot of credit in that, who I often says likes to say that he's practicing regulatory humility, a practice of regulatory humility. So that's one form of regulation. The other form of regulation is what you're talking about is deal regulation, is assessing from an FCC and a DOJ and potentially an FTC perspective, what is the right regulatory framework around that? And I think there is a level of uncertainty around that today, given that we have a Republican administration that traditionally you would focus on and associate with being very business-friendly and letting deals go through. But first of all, I don't think this is a traditional Republican administration, A. And B, every deal has to be evaluated separately. And we're in a new world order beyond the government around where these industries are going to take us vis-a-vis the consumer and vis-a-vis competition with each other. So I think precedents are important, but I don't think precedents can be just relied upon for deal dynamics. So there's a level of uncertainty around it, but I think those grounding principles will become clearer as we go. But I wouldn't wait from a deal-making perspective, given the business pressures of necessitating the need for change, to get in the game here. I don't see any boardroom or CEO activity kind of being on hold as a result of it. No more through the course of the year whether AT&T Time Warner gets approved and in which form it gets done. Certainly there's already a fight between the government and AT&T, so there is litigation going on. So whether or not that goes all the way through or gets solved commercially, we'll see. So we may not get more precedence if it's solved in different ways. Uh, at the same time, the business needs, uh, the models changing still necessitates scale opportunities and transformation. So I think you'll still see companies try those different mergers, and um, we'll have to evaluate each one as we go. And I still believe over time those deals get through by and large. Moving on to private capital. 2017 was a record year for private equity fundraising, with Apollo raising the largest buyout fund at $23.5 billion. KKR and Silver Lake also raised 14 to $15 billion funds. And of course, there's SoftBank, so almost a billion dollar vision fund. How do you see all of this impacting private and public market access to capital? There are more diverse forms of capital and deeper pools of capital than it must be ever before that I've seen. You know, those at Silver Lake or TPG, we just recently talked about the Rise Fund as part of TPG growth in our Bill McClashen podcast. And there are many examples of access to capital around the world. We talk about sovereign wealth funds, around the world, pension funds in Canada, et cetera, family offices. So I think capital is plentiful. The question is, how is that capital deployed and how is it differentiated one versus the other? And part of that's idea flow and sourcing. Part of it's the flexibility of that capital and the long-term nature of that capital. You will see private equity become more flexible and more prevalent as part of deal flow overall, not just traditional leverage buyouts or growth equity investing, but also Partnering with strategics, bridging the gap on timing between public and private valuations or between present value and terminal value valuations. So 
We could say, I'm not leading here, but a media company may be overly discounted and trading cheaply on a free cash flow basis today because public market investors are concerned about what the terminal value could look like given the ecosystem changing so much. But private equity could get very comfortable with the evolution of those cash flows paying down a certain debt structure that they can stomach that the public market wouldn't. So that would be an opportunity to play into it. I also referenced in the letter the uh, Intel McAfee example with TPG, where you know, you're partnering with the strategic to take control of the company, leave the strategics in for minority stake, and improving the businesses together versus just a buyout holistically. So I think there are examples of the flexibility of capital coming from the private industries and private funds, and also the long-term nature of those, that capital versus what was thought of being a much more short-term dynamic. So I, I think cycle of capital and flexibility of capital will be prevalent in 2018 and 19. So what would be your prediction for TMT IPOs next year? Do you think there'll be more or fewer? I think there will be more IPOs. This is coming across as a very bullish and optimistic conversation, but that's not surprising from a capital perspective. The IPO markets are open and available, maybe discerning. So companies like Airbnb, Spotify, expected to be in the public domain in 2018, where they didn't exist before that. The private market funding and availability is very much there, as we've talked about. And there will also be discerning with respect to private companies and valuations being more across the spectrum versus just going up. Obviously, the M&A market is strong, as I mentioned. So you do have these three levers working at the same time, M&A, private equity, public market financing. question is selectivity and prioritization and which ones are going to be front and center in terms of which companies and which assets and what valuations levels. And I think that's where I think the dislocation could exist versus the access to capital per se. To touch on some fundamental themes, the video market is one of many hot topics that we talk a lot about at LionTree. How do you see the video model evolving and does sports still have leverage in the system? So it's a great point uh, that you're making. I think on one hand, there's, as I mentioned, access to capital is plentiful. Interest rates are relatively low. You can get capital from many different sources, right? So then what creates dislocation of value if the capital is there and available cheaply and flexibly? A lot of the alpha or the change is in how you approach the projection of what a business model will look like in the future versus where it is today and how that's valued in transition or in its growth slope. So that's where I think the differentiation becomes interesting, what, which obviously plays well into what we focus on, which is you know, really in-depth, fundamental work with the advice on the private side or your content leadership and institutional advice on the public side. But really understanding the thematics and the businesses are really, really important. So one example of that is the video business. So the video business is dislocated. It's a robust business. It's a very mature business. And there are new ways of getting at the video business, which is a Netflix example or an Amazon Prime, which we keep mentioning. But what I'm looking for now is what's the alignment between investment spending content and consumer adoption of the service in video with the backdrop and bedrock being, can that alignment create a lot of free cash flow? So do you have investment spend alignment with subscriber growth and take-up plus free cash flow at the same time? And I think when you look at that, Netflix has... Six, seven billion dollars a year of investment spend and subscriber growth pretty dramatically around the globe, but not a lot of free cash flow. And so, if they had to change the dynamic of investing more, will that impact their free cash flow trajectory? Or when do they really see the harmony and euphoria between all three levers? Whereas the distribution companies and the Comcast, the charters, the telcos, exactly, or all together, spend 50, 60, 70 billion dollars in content and their subscribers decline. Part of that's cord cutting or market share shifts, but the free cash flow is still very strong. 
And so how do you use that free cash flow to invest back in other forms of businesses to create more growth of the consumer? And then you have new entrants that are fundamentally high engagement levels of content that are more niche video services that are being created as digital media, right? And you have good subscriber growth. Sometimes engagement's high, sometimes engagement's low. But the question is how much that costs to get that engagement. So sports is a high cost business to get that engagement of the customer for sports. Can you do it more cheaply? TBD, sports rights are expensive. There's been an audience for that, an experiential move for that, and that's been very valuable. In a traditional ecosystem, can it be in a direct-to-consumer model? We've worked a lot with a company called Fubo, as an example. Also, there are companies like Perform and other ones around the globe that have sports services in different ways to get to the consumer more directly. Clearly, they don't match the free cash flow power today of an ESPN or an RSN business. But that's not getting as much subscriber growth anymore. So I think the different levers are moving around. And I think we've yet to see the full alignment in video between the growth of the subscriber with appropriate investment and returns and free cash flow as an output. You may see it with technology companies getting into sports. And you know, Facebook has made a lot of noise around being more focused on sports these days. Amazon is doing the same thing with the NFL. You've seen Twitter do it in the past. I think you'll see all the technology platforms be in sports from one way or the other the next few years. You highlight several other key fundamental themes in your letter. Which of those would you particularly call out here? I think events and experiential Businesses are going to be very, very important. I'm not talking about necessarily just motion picture exhibitors and theaters, but live events we still very much believe in as a huge growth area globally, not just in the U.S. Very difficult to um, be disintermediated by technology. And that can be anything from Formula One to Live Nation and businesses like that in music and sports across the board, art, etc. And then we have the autonomous vehicles, which I think will be a huge feature at CES this year, not surprisingly, and how that pace of change kind of plays into business models, not just the auto industry, the technology industry, but also the insurance industries, et cetera. We're interested in learning more about areas like life sciences and healthcare technology. That's uh, something that we're still uh, getting our heads around here. And then I think it's not all about the consumer all the time. They're business-to-business and enterprise models that are also very important in uh, the evolution of the business. And so we always tax the consumer a lot in our conversations and our thematics, but the consumer is only part of the equation here. I think business-to-business is also critical. You could not have an Outlook conversation around 2018 without talking about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. We've been a fan of Bitcoin, at least in its experimentation and its, uh, in our learnings from the very beginning. We've had some good influences among our clients to help us figure that out over the last five years. And uh, we've had good, some good exposure to Bitcoins as a firm. However, um, I'm not making a comment whether Bitcoins are overvalued or not today. Clearly, it's had a euphoric run here. But I do think the cryptocurrency and the blockchain discussion is here to stay, and that will be crystallized, I think, over the next couple of years in terms of other applications off the blockchain. I think that'll be something that we're going to get to study a little bit more here. Ari, at the end of your letter, you listed a number of good suggestions for book reads. How do you come up with that list? What makes the cut? Well, I appreciate your asking because I like to read a lot, don't always have time to read, and don't always have time to read in a hard copy format. So I do uh, increasingly look at audiobooks and other forms of digesting material, whether it's podcasting or recorded audiobooks. If you look at my recommended reading list, it tries to represent a list of topics beyond just business. So the, yes, there are some things on technology. There's a book called Afteron, a novel of Silicon Valley, as one example. There's also a book called The Dawn of the New Everything, Encounters with Reality and Virtual Reality. Interesting. And then there's also Streampunks, written by our good friend Robert Kinsel from YouTube. But there's also... A part of the reading that I enjoy 
around the political landscape that we're in today, whether it's the gatekeepers, which is about the White House chief staffs over different administrations and how they deal organizationally with the job of supporting the president of the United States, or talking about Richard Nixon, or now that there's a great film out around Churchill, a book called Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. And I really like the political orientation to try to get some inspiration from the past to understanding where we are today. And then there's just thinking about the future. I love this book called The Three-Body Problem. It wasn't a book written in 2017. It's a few years old, but it gives you a real good sense of science fiction from a Chinese writer's perspective, which is fascinating. So I try to have a bit of a holistic view, and then curiosity is front and center with everything that I think about for my life and for this year in particular, and thinking about how we move the ball forward. And Walter Isaacson's Leonardo da Vinci tackles curiosity from an artistic lens in a way that I really enjoyed. So that is at the forefront. Every reading list is about curiosity, and that book really symbolizes that for me. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review as it helps people find the show. You can also always follow us on social media. Our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle is at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. From all of us at Lion Tree, best wishes for an exciting and successful new year. Audiation.